please pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that once again, we have been allowed to gather in this way. I thank you for my uh, dear brothers and sisters who are tuning in all over the place. And I pray that you would be with them in this moment. I pray that all for all of us, God, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. We thank you for this season. We thank you for the, the hope that is found in Advent in the, the remembrance of the fact that you came to earth as a baby and that you have promised that you will come again to make all things right. May we stand in that hope today. I pray that you would speak through me in this moment. I pray that um, the plain truth of your text, of your word, would come across and ring true and that it would be communicated clearly. I pray um, that we would feel a deep sense of your love and your provision for us as we meditate on this passage today. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, uh, so good to be back with you today as we continue in our Advent series. Uh, if you were with us last week, you may remember me saying that we have just come out of a series on Esther called Hope and Trouble, and we are now in an Advent series that is really about hope and trouble. And so we're just going to keep running with that at least through the end of the year, and we're going to continue to see that theme uh, emerge today. So today's text uh, was read uh, beautifully already during the Advent lighting, but uh, I'm going to read it again just to, again, reorient our hearts to it. It is Luke chapter 2. I'm going to preach out of verses 8 to 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, and this is what it says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you may have seen this week that our friends at Google, uh, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there are, not, there are only a handful of churches that can claim the same hometown as Google, so I consider them my friends. Our friends at Google uh, released the list of the top 10 Google searches for 2020. And if you saw it, you will know what I'm about to say. I mean, what a summary of the dumpster fire that 2020 has felt like. It is a depressing list. And what better way to start a sermon on hope than to run through a depressing list? So I just wanna read for you the top 10 search terms on Google for 2020. Uh, here we go. Number one, election results. That's not what I expected to be number one. Number two, coronavirus. That's the one that I thought would be number one. So number one, election results. Number two, coronavirus. Number three, Kobe Bryant. Number four, coronavirus update. Number five, coronavirus symptoms. Number six, Zoom. Now, at first glance, that one's not kind of as depressing as the other ones, but then when you actually think about why so many people were Googling Zoom, it kind of does start to feel depressing like the other ones. It, unless you own Zoom stock, then it was not a depressing year for, for Zoom. So number six is Zoom. Number seven, who is winning the election? Number eight, Naya Rivera. She was an actress who tragically drowned earlier this year. Number nine, 
Chadwick Boseman. And then rounding out the top 10 of Google search terms for 2020 is PlayStation 5. So for those counting at home, that's really kind of nine out of 10 that are just negative and total bummers and, and discouraging and depressing. But then when you look at PlayStation 5, it's like, well, that, that maybe doesn't fit with those. But then you think about the fact that it's a device that allows you to escape reality, and maybe it does make sense for it to be uh, on that list as well. If 100 years from now, somebody asks the question, what was it like to be alive in 2020? All you would really need to do is show them this list and it will give them an amazing sense for what this year felt like. And as I was looking at it and reading it this week, uh, something struck me. It's amazing to me how closely connected this list of search terms from Google is with our media. Whether it's our news media, our social media, whatever other media there is, this really is a summary of the news that we have been getting all year. And I am not going to um, like shatter anyone's idea of what a, a original thought is when I say this, but this has been a year full of bad news. It has just been a year of bad news after bad news after bad news, and we just can, can kind of continue to sit in it here as we're halfway through December. And so as we find ourselves now, I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that we are desperate for some good news. We are collectively desperate for some good news, and we can see that in the way that we're acting right now. We scour uh, news websites looking for articles that would say something about de reductions in COVID cases, and there, there aren't any of those articles right now. I've looked for them. Uh, we share with everyone we know stories that warm our heart, like couples who were supposed to have a wedding during COVID and their non-refundable deposit they used to feed families who were in need. And then this week, kind of out of nowhere, uh, we get this news about a vaccine. Like it's always, at least in my perspective, it's always kind of been like hanging out there, something in the future. And then all of a sudden this week, it was like, it's here and people are already getting it in Britain. And I, can I just say, if I worked in marketing for Pfizer, I would be going all in right now on a marketing campaign that said, fear not for behold, we bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people eventually. We are desperate right now for good news. But what I want, to, what I want us to tr hopefully recognize or try to recognize in this moment is that as crazy as this year has been, um, as, as, as hard as it has been, as unique as we feel like it has been, I do not think it has been all bad. If I can say, can I talk about the blessing of 2020? I know some of you are like, you, you better watch out when you say the blessing of 2020. I believe the blessing of 2020 has actually been the difficulty of it because as we kind of talked about last week, and I'm just gonna frame it a different way right now, 2020 has brought front and center into our lives the human predicament, the human condition, it has shown us in no uncertain terms that we are not in control, that we are not able to do the things that need to be done, and we are not able to save ourselves. Uh, catastrophes, disasters, hard situations are known to reveal that to us. I love the way that Pastor Eugene Peterson says it. He says this. He says, there is a sense in which catastrophe doesn't introduce anything new into our lives. It simply exposes the moral or spiritual reality that already exists, but was hidden beneath an overlay of routine, self-preoccupation, and business as usual. And I think that's just an awesome summary of what 2020 has been. Yeah, the, the virus obviously is a new virus that has come into our lives, but what has really happened this year is that we have lost our routine, our self-preoccupation, and our business as usual. 
and it has exposed to us the moral and spiritual reality that has been existed under the surface all along. And so what I want us to see is that as we are sitting in this moment, just so desperate for good news, is that we are in really good company. Because ever since the creation of humans, we have been desperate for good news. Every generation that has gone before us in some way, in some shape, in some form, has felt what we are feeling in this moment and has been desperate for good news. And so, in light of that, what I want us to also see is that the Israelites, 2,000 years ago, when this text happened, were also desperate for good news. As we turn to our text today, in this state of just, we could use some good news this morning, we have to understand the context that Luke chapter 2 is set in for us to really get an appreciation of what is happening. So what I want to do in the next 60 to 90 seconds is summarize the whole Old Testament so that we can get a, an appreciation for where, where we sit in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to skip the very first part, but God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt and God miraculously calls them out of Egypt. He, he brings them into the desert and God tells the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, he says, you are my chosen people. Out of all the people on the earth, I have chosen you to be a special and set apart and unique people to me. And so I want to make a covenant with you. And if you uphold your end of the covenant, life is going to be really good for you. But if you don't uphold your end of the covenant, life is going to get really bad for you. And oh, by the way, I'm bringing you into a promised land. It's beautiful. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. And I'm going to drive out all the nations before you. And so he does it. He brings them into the promised land. He drives out the nations that are larger and more powerful than the Israelites. He drives them out before him. They settle there. They build a temple. And at the dedication of that temple, we're told that God's glory in the form of a cloud descends on the temple and enters it. And it symbolizes God's presence with his people. And God lives, God's earthly presence lives and dwells in the midst of his people for centuries. And for centuries, he speaks to them through visions and revelations and prophets. And much of what he says to them is warning them, you're not upholding your end of the deal. You're not upholding the end of the deal. It's not gonna turn out well for you. Please change your ways, but they are completely unable to do that. And so God allows them to be conquered. They're taken over by a foreign nation. They're deported out of the promised land. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And the prophet Ezekiel from Babylon has a vision of the temple. And he sees the glory of God leave the temple and go settle on a mountain outside the city of Jerusalem. By God's graciousness, he allows the Israelites to return to the promised land after a time. But they don't all come back. Some stay in the foreign lands. Some of them come back. They rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, but it's nothing like the first temple. And there is no biblical record of God's glory ever re-entering the second temple. He doesn't come back into the temple. And not only that, about that time in Israel's history, he goes silent. He stops talking to them. He sends no more prophets. There are no more visions. There are no more revelations. And for 400 years, it is dark. For 400 years, God's people don't hear from them and they are in a mess. So when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the beginning of the Gospels, and Luke is one of the Gospels that we're in right now, we need to understand that the, the, the Israelites, God's people, were desperate for good news. Sound familiar? 
They were desperate for good news. Their, their nation was in tatters. They were scattered all over the globe, the known globe. Uh, they were under Roman occupation. They didn't even have control of the promised land. They were under Roman occupation in their own land, and they are desperate for good news. And when we get to this story in Luke chapter 2, that is literally exactly what we get. If you remember the text that I just read, the angel brings them what? He brings them good news. And that good news for those shepherds out in that field outside of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that good news is good news for us as well. And as we look at these verses, I want to draw out three things. I want to answer three questions about this good news and what it could mean for us. The first one I want to answer is how does it arrive? How does the good news arrive? The second question I want to answer is what is it? What is the good news? And then the third question I want to answer is who is it for? Who is the good news for? How does it arrive? What is it? And who is it for? As we sit here in this moment, December 2020, almost halfway through the month, longing for some good news, may we find some good news in the Word of God today. So the first thing that I want us to see, how does it arrive? How does the good news arrive? Look with me back at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The good news arrived in the dark it's nighttime. Here's this band of shepherds out in a field outside of Bethlehem, and they are, it's the middle of the night. They're fumbling around, trying to keep a fire going, trying to keep sheep who are notoriously difficult to manage from wandering away, trying to keep predators from, to get in. When it says they were keeping watch, what that probably means is that they were taking turns staying awake through the darkest moments of the night. And here, into that darkness, comes an angel who bursts forth in light. And what I want us to also recognize is that the darkness of that moment, the darkness that this angel burst into was not just a physical darkness, it was a spiritual darkness. Throughout the whole Bible, night is used as a metaphor for spiritual darkness. So I do not think it is an accident that this announcement of good news comes in the middle of the night. It, back in Exodus, when God is performing his, uh, sending his plagues on Egypt in order to help deliver his, his people out of Egypt, the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And God tells Moses, as he is getting ready to set up that plague in Exodus 10, 21, he tells Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt a darkness to be felt. And I believe that is what the Israelites were feeling as we come to the New Testament, as we come to Luke chapter 2, as we come to this moment outside of Bethlehem in this evening. They were in the middle of a darkness to be felt. They were asking questions like, where is God? What is he doing? What, what has happened to him? Is he still there? It's been four, over 400 years since we have heard from, from him. And here comes this angel in the middle of the night, bringing literally good news, and it bursts forth into the darkness. The good news obliterates the darkness. If you remember, uh, Jason preached two weeks ago on Isaiah 9, 9, Isaiah 9, chapter 2, or Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Isaiah is talking about what is happening right here in this moment in Luke chapter 2. It is dark. It is physically dark. It is spiritually dark. And a light bursts forth. A light of good news bursts forth. And it obliterates the darkness. And do not miss what we are told in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And what? The glory of the Lord shone around them. 
the light that they see is the glory of God, the glory that had dwelt with his people for generations and had left and had gone silent. Now the heavens open up and the glory can be seen again. And it's like he's saying, I'm back. The good news is here and the good news is bursting into your darkness. A light in the dark makes all the difference. When we first moved here to California, uh, almost two and a half years ago, the moving company was a kind of a disaster and it, they, we couldn't figure out where our stuff was and when it was going to arrive and we kept pushing back our flights and eventually got to the point where it was like, I have to come out here. And so I came out ahead of my family and there was something going on. It was like impossible to get a hotel room, which worked out fine. I got an air mattress and I just took it to our rental house and set up shop in an empty house. The problem though, and some of you who've slept in an empty house will know this, when there's nothing in the house, no uh, alarm clock lights, no power strips with little lights on them, no TVs or anything that give off a glow. It was dark. It was a darkness to be felt at night in that empty house. And I, maybe I should be embarrassed to admit this, but I, I'm not, I'm proud. And I understand, my guess is some of you are gonna be like, yeah, I understand that. I would have done the same thing. I slept with a light on. <laughs> it was so dark. I could feel the darkness. Uh, that each night I would turn on the light in the closet and leave the door open just a crack so that there was some light in the room because otherwise it was so uncomfortable because a light in the darkness makes all the difference. And I want to ask this morning, does anyone feel like this year has been a year of darkness that you can feel? And look, I know I sound like a broken record and some of you are probably like, dude, stop talking about this stuff this year. But I also recognize this is what we are feeling in this moment. And I, and I, I want to speak to what we are actually walking through and not pretend like it's not happening. This year has felt dark. We have felt the darkness. It's not only of the virus, but we have felt the darkness of racial injustice and oppression. We have felt the political darkness uh, for those of us who live in the West, we have felt the darkness of literal smoke in the skies that has blocked out the sun because of the fires. Uh, many of us in our congregation have felt the darkness of the death of a loved one this year. We have felt the darkness, and many of us still are the darkness, of loneliness and fear and anxiety and depression. It has been a year of darkness. It is dark and we are tired just like those shepherds out in that field outside of Bethlehem. But may the hope of this passage ring true for us this morning. And that is that God's good news breaks into the darkness and obliterates it. There is a light that overwhelms the darkness and it is God's good news. And it was as true for us today as it was for those shepherds 2000 years ago. Now that begs the next question, which is that's great that there's good news that enters into the darkness, but what is that good news? So the second question I want to answer is what is that good news? Read with me again, verses 10 and 11. It says, and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I just want to draw out uh, one phrase and it's the one I keep saying over and over again. So it's, it's not an accident, but that word, the phrase translated in the ESV, good news. This is what the angel is bringing them. In the Greek, that word is euangelion. And it, it, it's where we get our English words, um, ev evangelical, evangelize. And it's where we get our word gospel. So one of the books that I read this week said, said that the literal translation of this message of the angel is fear not for behold, I evangelize to you great joy. 
I gospel to you great joy. And what we need to understand is that that term gospel, euangelion, though today we associate it super closely with the Christian faith, in that time, it was just a technical term. It was used for a lot of different things. It was not, it was not married to the Christian faith like it is today. The, the, the word gospel back then indicated a historical event with widespread implication. It was a historical and important event with widespread implication. So the, the word gospel was not used by like teenagers when they asked someone out and they were like, hey, she said she'd go out with me and the, their buddies would be like, hey, that's gospel, man. That's good news. That's not how it was used. It was used for important historical events with widespread implications. And so uh, with a lot of implication for what's happening in our story, when Caesar Augustus became emperor of Rome, the message, the announcement that was sent out to the Roman kingdom started off with the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It was saying this is, this is a historical event that has happened with widespread implications and it is good news. It is the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And so what is the good news that the angel brings to the shepherds in that field outside of Bethlehem? It is the gospel. It is the good news that a historic and important event with widespread implications has happened. It is the gospel that the Savior has arrived. The Savior is here. The Messiah is here. The Christ is here. The one who you have been waiting for, whether you knew you were waiting for him is, or not, has arrived. God has returned to dwell with his people. And why is this good news for us just like it was good news for the shepherds back then? This is why. Every other religion, every other major religion, at least that I'm aware of, is a philosophy. The origin stories of Buddhism or Islam or dozens of other world religions are philosophies. They are all stories about how someone, one way or another, figured out how to be saved, figured out how to earn salvation, how to achieve heaven, how to reach up to God. But the Christian story is not a philosophy, it is a gospel. It is a historical event with widespread implications. The message of the gospel is not that you can figure out how to be saved. The message of the gospel is that God has reached down, that God has brought salvation to us in a person. It is not a philosophy, it is a gospel. And as Tim Keller says, the historical event is not that salvation was found, the historical event is salvation. The good news that the angel brought that, that burst into the darkness that night was that salvation has arrived. And that salvation is not a philosophy. It is not a way of life for you to follow. That salvation is a person. It is the birth of this little baby Jesus who is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. <clears throat> the good news arrives in the dark and the good news is that there is a gospel and it is a gospel of Jesus Christ. The last thing that I want us to draw out of this text is, is not how does it arrive or what is it, but who is it for? And if you look back with me again at verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for who? For all the people. It is a message of salvation for everyone. And we actually get, a, a, we get that case in point in the story that we are looking at right now. By virtue of the fact that the angel delivered this message to a group of shepherds, 
That is like a show and tell example that the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is for everyone. That is because shepherds were considered, virtually every commentator I read this week said that shepherds were considered some of the lowest class people in all of Israel. And so how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the greatest, the greatest good news that has ever been communicated in the history of the world and it is, it is communicated to some of these just low, low class, lowly regarded shepherds who were kind of social outcasts. Listen to what one of the commentators I read this week said. He said this, as a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. More regrettable was their unfortunate habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. What he's saying there is they would steal. They took stuff that wasn't theirs as they moved about the country. Uh, Shepherds were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. There is no reason for thinking, however, there is no reason for thinking that Luke's shepherds were other than devout men. Else why would God have given them such a privilege? But they did come from a despised class. So that kind of makes sense. That helps us understand it a little bit, doesn't it? Just here's this this class of people who are very, very lowly regarded, um, social outcasts, thought very lowly of. And God chooses to reveal the greatest news in the history of the earth to some of them. But those ones, Luke's shepherds, the ones out in that field outside of Bethlehem that night, they must have been the good guys. They must have been the ones who weren't like all the other shepherds. They must have been the honest ones who were hardworking and who were devout and who always did their quiet times. That helps us make sense of what's happening here, doesn't it? It could. My only problem with that is that I think it's a bunch of garbage. Bless this scholar who's got more intelligence in his little finger than I have in my entire body. But there is nothing more contrary to the message of this book than what he says in that quote. This idea that the only reason that God would have chosen them to be the recipients of this good news is because somehow they had earned it, because somehow they were better and more devout. Here's a class of people who are just kind of the scum of the earth, but these were the chosen few, and that's why God gave them the privilege to receive this news. That is a that is a bunch of junk. You know what I think the case is? I think those shepherds in that field that Luke tells us about in chapter two were just as broken and messed up and sinful as every other shepherd was in Israel at that time. Why do I say that? Because that is the message of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel, that salvation has broken forth, that salvation has broken into the darkness, and it is not something that we can earn. It is not just for the few and the chosen and the devout and the righteous. It is for everyone. The message of God's salvation is for everyone, lowly shepherd or not. There's a, there's a well-known pastor who tells a great story about being at a youth event. And the speaker at this event uh, had a rose. And he took this rose and he handed it down into the uh, audience. And he said, I want all of you to, to take this rose and look at it. I want you to smell it and touch it and feel it and, and pass it to the next person. And and, and it goes, so it went around the whole audience and then the speaker gets it back. And I think I failed to mention this was a, a, a talk on purity and the teacher gets the rose, ba- the, the speaker gets the rose back. And after being touched by everyone in the audience, it's, it's mangled and broken and, and it hardly resembles a rose. And, and this pastor says with disdain in his voice, this speaker said, who would want this rose now? And, and this pastor says it took everything in him not to jump up from the back and yell, God, 
God wants that rose because that is the message of the gospel. Not that we have to earn our salvation, but that God has reached down and has brought salvation to us in a person and it is for everyone. We are all mangled roses. We are all shepherds, ceremonially unclean, outcasts from society and totally unworthy of any salvation that God could give us. But the message of this book The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that salvation is for everyone and there is nothing we can do. It doesn't matter how your your devotion, your righteousness, your good works, they are like filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. They cannot earn you your salvation. It is only grace. It is only unmerited favor. It is only unmerited kindness whereby we are saved. And that is the good news of what happened that night in Bethlehem. It was a gospel. It was a historical event and it was salvation. It is grace. It is grace. It is grace. It is always, it is only, it is ever grace. The good news of that night was that night was grace. The gospel is grace. Salvation is grace and it is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. No one is beyond the reach of God's salvation. God has opened up the gates of heaven, not that we might earn our way in, but that through the blood of his son shed on the cross, who was born that night in Bethlehem, we might enter in under his merits. The good news is for everyone. I love the way that this text finishes. Um, No sooner does the angel get the, this announcement out, then he is joined by some of his heavenly buddies. And that word host in verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Uh, that can also be translated as, it, it means an army. It's, it, it means an army. So when we see paintings or uh, pageants or depictions of this scene and there's a single angel and then he's joined by two or three of his friends. That's not really an accurate depiction of what happened that night. It was a host. It was an army. No sooner does he get the words of this announcement out of his mouth than 10,000 angels join him in the heavenly realm. And what happens? They erupt in a worship service. It is the only appropriate response to the magnitude of the announcement that has been made. They sing together glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And that word peace in this context does not mean the cessation of war. It means salvation. It is not peace between men. It is peace between man and God. They are talking about salvation. The relationship between God and man has been opened back up because salvation has arrived and it is in the form of his son. The light has obliterated the darkness. The gospel is good news and the only appropriate response is worship. So may we join the heavenly angels in doing so. It is good news of salvation and it is for everyone. doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. That is good news. And it is good news that we are desperate for today. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king.
God, we thank you for this good news that you burst forth upon the scene on that dark night outside of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And God, we thank you that that wasn't just good news for a group of shepherds out in the field, but it is good news for everyone today on the face of the earth. Your gospel is our hope. Your gospel is our life. Your gospel is our salvation. May we stand on it today. May we rest in it today. We thank you for this season. We thank you for this season of hope that Advent represents. And we ask that that hope and confidence in you and your plan would wash over us today. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.